you may have heard it said that freedom isn't free. In the context of the state, where what's in view is the liberties we enjoy as citizens of this earthly nation, what's usually implied by that phrase is that our freedoms as American citizens have been purchased with the service and sacrifice of men and women in our armed forces, especially, who have faced combat in various times and places, many of them giving their lives in those battles for the sake of preserving American freedom and independence. When it comes to the freedom that we have in Christ, the saying applies as well. Freedom isn't free, but it has come at a much higher price and has a much richer, even eternal, implication. First of all, of course, Jesus Christ, the sinless, eternal Son of God, died in order to secure our Christian freedom. And while his sacrifice provided for us a durable, infallible freedom from sin and death, nevertheless, we often seem to prefer the chains of slavery. And so in our passage today, Galatians 2, 1 through 14, we find that there are ways we ought to strive to preserve our freedom in Christ. Not because it's actually in danger of being lost. Christ has purchased our freedom. It is secure. But because we are often inclined to live as though we aren't truly free. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the second chapter. And as we revisit this autobiographical section of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we will learn three ways to preserve our freedom in Christ. Just for a little bit of context of what's going on in the letter, Paul writes this letter to admonish the young believers in the Galatian churches because they have begun to listen to false teachers who insist on adding various aspects of religious observance to their faith in Christ in order to be saved. You must trust in Christ and do these certain things. Generally, for these false teachers, it was adding certain religious rites and ceremonies of Judaism. It's faith in Christ plus something else that gains you a relationship with God. And these young Christians have begun to listen to and believe this teaching. And so Paul spends the first chapter and a half defending his own credibility as a divinely appointed messenger of the gospel, and therefore demonstrating the reliability of his message. So in today's passage, he will travel south to Jerusalem, finally, for a council with the other apostles. And we will learn three ways to preserve our freedom in Christ. Oppose gospel distortion, unite in gospel proclamation, and correct gospel confusion. You don't have to have all those right now, but those are the, uh, the points that we'll hang the talk on this morning. I'm going to read for you the first five verses of Galatians 2. We'll just walk through this one sort of section at a time. Galatians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul stands with the apostles against a false gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, 
though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We help preserve our freedom in Christ when we oppose gospel distortion. When we oppose gospel distortion, that's what's going on in these first five verses. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem now after 14 years. So it says after his, his conversion to faith in Christ, he spent three years ministering in uh, uh, Arabia and in Damascus. And then he went up to Jerusalem for 15 days and met with Peter and James very briefly. Again, Paul is making the, the case overall here that his appointment is from God, his message is from God, so he didn't need the approval of any man, even influential, important men like Peter and James and John and the other apostles. And so now he, he was in Jerusalem for just a few days, and then he spent 14 years ministering, preaching, planting churches in Syria and Cilicia, which would include the Roman province of Galatia, where these churches are to whom he's writing now. And so he spent 14 years serving God, planting churches, preaching the gospel, uh, and now he goes back. And he says he goes back because of a revelation. So in other words, he doesn't go back to Jerusalem because the apostles summoned him there. He doesn't go back to Jerusalem because he thinks randomly it'll be a good idea. He goes back to Jerusalem because God tells him to. So he's spoken already of a revelation he's received on that road to Damascus when Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to him and he was converted. He's spoken of revelation he's received from the Lord in the teachings that he then gives to the church. And so once again, just in passing, he mentions that Jesus tells him by revelation, go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. And so he does. I think that this visit to Jerusalem corresponds to what Luke writes about in Acts chapter 15, the famous Jerusalem Council, where the apostles and leaders among the church gather to deal with, very, with various kind of theological controversies, especially the one that is uh, at issue here in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So when he goes up to Jerusalem after 14 years of serving in Syria and Cilicia, I think it is this uh, Jerusalem council in Acts 15. But the meeting he talks about is sort of a meeting inside a meeting. The meeting he's going to tell us about is just with Peter and James and John. He says those who seem to be influential and not with the whole sort of gathering of all the leaders uh, of the churches in the region. And so he's gone there and there's this council going on and as one sort of subset of that council he meets privately with these three influential apostles. And I want you to notice that he goes with Barnabas. Barnabas is uh, a co-worker of Paul from his first missionary journey uh, who travels with him a lot, preaches the gospel with him, plants churches with him. So you see his name over and over when you're reading about Paul's uh, missionary work in Acts. And he takes Titus along with him. He doesn't tell us much about Titus, but Titus shows up again and again in Paul's writings. Um, and in fact, he's written a letter in our New Testament to Titus who is a young protege of Paul, a Gentile convert to Christianity, who he then leaves in, at the island of Crete to install elders in the churches there. And so the letter, the book of Titus, is a letter that Paul writes to this young man to help him in leading those churches. So he says, I have taken Titus along 
with me. I want you to notice the significance of that. Titus will be a real-life test case for the apostles. I don't think it's an unhealthy or disrespectful challenge, so to speak, to the apostles, but they're going to deal with this theological controversy. Essentially, do Gentile, non-Jewish converts to Christianity need to embrace Jewish ways of life? Do they need to be circumcised, for example? That's going to be the sort of poster issue for this passage. And uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, that'll sound very strange to you. But in, under the Old Covenant, beginning with Abraham, God set apart his people, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, by the right of circumcision of the males, obviously. And so that became the fundamental covenant sign, the marker that you belong to God and his people was that if you were a male, you had been circumcised. And so now that the gospel is beginning to spread, and there are non-Jewish communities that are hearing and responding to the gospel, it becomes a very contentious point of controversy. Are we going to expect Gentile converts to Christianity to embrace Jewish rituals and identity markers? Because if the Jews are the people of God, then surely non-Jewish people need to conform themselves to Jewish identity in order to be among God's people. That's the controversy that is going on. And so Paul intentionally, strategically, takes a Gentile convert along with him to have this conversation with the other apostles. So it won't be merely theoretical. Like, would we require a Gentile convert to live like a Jew? It's going to be, are you going to require this man right here to be circumcised in order to be accepted? says a lot about Titus's character that he's willing to put himself in that potentially compromising situation. He knows he's going as a test case, and he goes right along. So Paul has gone to Jerusalem to meet with those who seemed influential. He says this four times in these verses, by the way. Those who seemed influential, or one time those who seemed to be pillars, that is foundational sort of people in the, the, in the building of the church. And Paul wants us to get the sense that he's not impressed by them. Right? He's spoken at some length already about how he is not trying to please man. He is simply serving Christ. And he says, I don't need the approval of men. I don't need the agreement of the other apostles. I've got my message from Jesus. I can give it. I can preach it. And it is divine and authorized. And so he's kind of saying, I went to meet with those who seemed to be influential. Right? In other words, those who were regarded generally as the leaders of the church. And I don't think he means any disrespect to Peter and James and John and the others, but he is making sure that we recognize he's not going to Jerusalem to meet with them out of a sense of angst or discomfort. I've got to get their approval. That's not why he goes. And so he meets with those who seem to be influential. And while he's meeting with them, excuse me, before we get to th this part, in verse 3, you'd be glad to note that the apostles make the right choice. Verse 3, it says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. And so they make the right decision. They come to the agreement, well, if God is working among the Gentiles and God is inviting non-Jewish peoples to be saved by Christ and to be among his people, then it doesn't make sense for us to require that they get more Jewish, right? Or that they start living according to this old covenant because it's a new covenant. It's fundamentally new. 
And so when he brings Titus before them with this question, are we going to require a Gentile convert to take the marks of Jewish identity in order to be acceptable to God and thus a part of the community of God's people? They rightly conclude, no, we will not require that. It would be wrong for us to require that. It would be anti-gospel for us to require that because then we would be in the place of understanding the gospel as faith in Jesus Christ plus adherence to Jewish ritual and law. That's how you would get acceptable to God. And so Titus rightly is not forced to be circumcised. Look at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. So there's theological controversy. There's false teachers. There is foul play. Right? There are people who are trying to infiltrate the ranks of the Christian church and the leaders of the church in order to influence others and to get this false gospel to spread. And so he says, false brothers, oh yes, I'm, I'm one of you, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I belong here. But what they're doing is infiltrating the ranks of their leadership so that they might, he gives us two things that they are there to do. Number one, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to bring us into slavery. Now, this is the first time that Paul in this letter uses the language of freedom and slavery, but it will become a recurring theme. Much of the heart of the letter, when he gets past this autobiographical section and begins just sort of explaining and expounding the gospel, will hinge on these notions of freedom and slavery as it relates to the law of God and how we as sinners relate to God and how we are made acceptable to him. So these false brothers have come in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And the freedom he has in view here is freedom from the efforts to keep the law of God in order to be acceptable to him. He had spoken of his own life as a Pharisee, this one who was more zealous than all among his generation, who were in their earnest efforts to earn God's approval, were focusing on keeping of the law. And yet the result of that in Paul's own life was that he was as far away from God as it was possible to be, even persecuting the very people that God was redeeming in Jesus Christ. And so he's already illustrated to us in his own life that law-keeping as a means of gaining God's approval is a bad place to be. It is a false foundation. And so when he speaks of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, what he's speaking of is our ability to merely rest upon Jesus in faith and to be confident that our standing with God is secure on that basis alone, not in relation to our keeping of his law. Now we need to be careful, and we'll have opportunities as we go throughout this book to, to not thereby conclude that obeying God doesn't matter. That God doesn't care how Christians live. That's clearly not the case. Paul will indeed exhort Christians to live in some certain ways in this very letter. But it has to do with what is the basis of our standing with God. And if you think that in order to be acceptable to God, you have to measure up to his law, you have to fulfill his commands, you have to reach a certain level of success in obedience to what he has commanded, you are enslaved. You're enslaved to this way of thinking. 
You're enslaved to a false way of relating to God where you think that you can earn your standing with him. You can earn his approval somehow. And that's when he says that they wanted to bring us back into slavery. He means that they intended to convince them that they ought to require Jewish religious observance in addition to faith in Christ in order to be acceptable to God. So there's this controversy raging. And I want you to see that in verse 5, Paul and the apostles stand together in opposing this false gospel. Praise God, praise God. They oppose this distortion of the gospel. They regard it as slavery to impose Jewish law upon Gentile Christians. And thus, he says, the truth of the gospel is preserved for you. For the Galatians, yes, to be sure, but also for us. Think of how catastrophic it might have been had the apostles in this first generation controversy decided, you know what? Gentile Christians have to become like Jews and start abiding by Jewish religious law in order to be acceptable to God. Where would we be these 2,000 years later if that had been the gospel that took root and spread among the world? So praise God they got this right. The Spirit of God guided them to truth and they rejected this distortion of the gospel. Friends, we also must be ready to stand up against false gospels when they arise, especially within the church. So in this case, we've got false teachers seeking to infiltrate the leadership of the church so that their message could spread. We have to be ready to, to stand up against those false gospels, which means two things. Number one, we've got to recognize a false gospel when we hear it. And you don't recognize a false gospel by becoming an expert on all the false gospels. You recognize false gospels by getting really deeply acquainted with the true gospel. So that when you hear something that doesn't ring true, you can sniff it out. That doesn't pass the test. That sounds like we're adding something to simple faith in Christ in order to be saved. So we need to recognize a false gospel when we hear it. And then secondly, we need to have the courage to oppose a false gospel when someone promotes it. Now think about this context. These are Christian leaders thinking about life and doctrine for the sake of the church, and you have these false teachers who come in. So even in a Christian context, even in the name of Jesus Christ, there will be those who teach falsehood. There will be those who say, no, 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 the gospel is really like this or like that, and we need to recognize that's not the true gospel and have the courage to oppose distortions of the gospel even when they come from the stage of a church building or from the platform of some national Christian ministry. Just because they speak in the name of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that what they're saying is the true gospel. We have to recognize the falsehood and be courageous enough to stand up to it which will require us, to borrow a theme from earlier in the letter, to fear God rather than man, to aim to serve Christ regardless of the potential embarrassment or social consequences it's likely to earn us. We don't need to be unnecessarily obnoxious or divisive or argumentative or nitpicky, but when the gospel is being compromised, we need to speak up. We need to stand against distortions of the gospel. Friends, that is not the gospel. The gospel is simple faith in Christ. God's free grace to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ, that is the only basis of a standing 
with God. We help preserve our freedom in Christ when we're prepared to oppose gospel distortions that creep into the church. Well, in the next few verses, verses 6 through 10, Paul is affirmed by the apostles in the true gospel. So they've had this meeting, they've dealt with this uh, false gospel, this distortion of the gospel and rejected it. Now follow along with me from verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We help preserve our freedom in Christ when we unite in gospel proclamation. When we unite in gospel proclamation. So Paul reports to us here that these influential leaders, these pillars of the church, Peter and James and John, remember Cephas is just the Aramaic form of the name Peter, both meaning rock, so he's referring to the same person, uses them interchangeably. When these three apostles recognized the grace of God at work in Paul, it says they added nothing to him. And I think that means at least two things. They didn't add to his authority or to his message. That is, their affirmation of Paul doesn't make him more qualified. Well, now that I've got the stamp of approval of the apostles in Jerusalem, I'm good to go. He was already divinely commissioned. His commissioning was directly given by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Go, you are to preach, be my apostle to the Gentiles, right? Jesus commissioned him. He gave him this saving message. So their affirmation doesn't make him any more qualified. It just recognizes, perhaps in a formal way, what God has already done, what God has already birthed in Paul and how he's already commissioned him. And secondly, they agree with Paul's gospel, thus not adding any content to his message. So when he says they added nothing to me, I think it also could mean they didn't say, Paul, you've got most of it right, but you're leaving something out. We think also, in addition to faith in Christ, you need to encourage these Gentiles to whom you're preaching uh, to become a little more Jewish, right? To to embrace religious dietary code and circumcision and all these other things. They don't add anything to his message. When he says the gospel I'm putting before the Gentiles for these now 17 years of ministry is that if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he saves you, period. Period regardless of your obedience to the law or your Jewish identity, when he says, that's what I'm preaching, they say, that sounds right to us. That's the same gospel. And so they recognize the grace of God at work in Paul, both in the commissioning of Paul as a Gentile, an apostle to the Gentiles and in the ministry that has happened, the churches that have been birthed through that ministry. And so the result of that is, look at verse 9, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. That is, God had unique, distinct callings, different assignments for these apostles. Peter was an apostle specifically tasked with preaching to a Jewish audience and calling Jewish people to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of their scriptures. Jesus is the Messiah that you've been looking for and that's been prophesied. And he's appointed Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. So he is intended to preach to a mostly non-Jewish crowd, although he himself is Jewish, right? Paul spoke of that. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, all that stuff. So Paul was very Jewish, and yet God has appointed him to take the gospel beyond those boundaries and become the apostle to the Gentiles. And so when James and Peter and John recognize that is what God has done, they give the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me in the middle of verse 9. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, the right hand of fellowship is more than a mere social gesture. It's not just shaking hands, just a polite greeting. There's a sweetness in the camaraderie of fellow Christians recognizing a shared, though varied, experience of God's saving grace in Christ, intentionally uniting in purpose and passion to proclaim Christ to neighbors near and far. That's what these brothers are doing. When they recognize God at work in them and through them and how God has commissioned them to these different audiences and look at what God, the people that are being saved by these ministries, they recognize God's grace and they unite together in purpose, even sort of strategically. You go to the Gentiles, that seems to be how God has appointed you. I'll go to the Jews, that seems to be how God has appointed me. And they agree and they affirm one another and they unite together even in their varied ministries for the purpose of the gospel. We share that camaraderie with each other within this local church. We're gathered here right now, but in a little while we're going to disperse. But as we disperse, we don't disperse as just a bunch of individuals all over the place doing our own thing. We disperse as those who are united together by the right hand of fellowship as carrying the gospel, as ministering to our neighbors, as preaching to our family and to our coworkers. And bringing life and love and hope to the places where God plants us. And so we go with this sense of united purpose and passion even as we spread. We also share this right hand of fellowship with churches across Greenville and Hunt County. Many of them in our association of churches, many of them not. We share this right hand of fellowship with churches of the Southern Baptist Convention all over the continent and indeed with all true churches around the globe. Christians are united in the task of making disciples of all nations. We are united together in the single-minded purpose to see Jesus Christ known and glorified in every place, among every people, among every tribe and nation and language of the earth, because that's God's vision. And so it's our vision too. There is a beautiful Catholicity, to use lowercase c, just in the sense of universality. There is a beautiful Catholicity that both energizes the church of Jesus Christ in her mission to make disciples and commends the gospel by demonstrating bonds of unity and affection beyond physical and geographical boundaries 
and beyond personal and social barriers. There are so many reasons that gospel ministry shouldn't work. There are so many reasons that the church doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking. Why are all these people who are nothing like one another, who speak different languages all over the globe, trying to accomplish the same thing for the same Savior? It's because we share the right hand of fellowship with everyone who names Christ as Lord and Savior. We share in this identity as the people of God in all times and places. By the way, in creeds that we read, when you see the word Catholic, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We don't mean that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church in distinction from Protestant denominations. What we mean is we believe in the universal communion of saints. That is the true church of Jesus Christ in all times and places. And that's what the right hand of fellowship is all about. It's about the sharing in the mission and the message of proclaiming Christ crucified and raised for sinners wherever we are. Well, all of this has the effect of strengthening the gospel's claim to divine authority. That now all of these apostles have gathered together and agreed and affirmed one another, extended the right hand of fellowship, and now they're going to disperse and go their separate ways. The gospel is commended to those who would hear it by the very unity that the people of God portray. As the Galatian Christians begin embracing the teaching of the Judaizers, that is those who say you must have faith in Christ and perform certain Jewish religious customs, they are not merely diverging from what Paul teaches. They are abandoning the agreed-upon body of apostolic witness concerning the gospel. And as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, they are deserting God himself in doing that. If I may... This kind of charge should give pause to anyone in the process of deconstructing his or her faith. It's one thing to say your new thoughts about God and religion disagree with what your pastor said. It's altogether more sobering and serious to consider you are actually out of step with the centuries-old tradition handed down to us by the apostles upon which the Christian church was founded and around which it has been united for two millennia. To say, I know this has been the historic teaching of the Christian church and understanding of the scripture, but it's unpopular socially, socially in our culture and it makes me feel weird, so I'm not sure it's true. That's dangerous and a bit arrogant. Be careful when you step beyond the boundaries of historic Christian apostolic witness. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons that I think it's valuable to glean from the best expressions of Christian faith and tradition from other times and cultures. When we recite the Nicene Creed, for instance, I like to think that in a sense we're exchanging the right hand of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Jesus who lived centuries ago and whose earthly journeys are already complete. Our unity with one another, down through the ages and across this very room, is in the gospel alone. Well, they end this sort of affirmation and right hand of fellowship and this commissioning of one another in verse 10, where Paul says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I love that the apostles reminded Paul, please don't forget about the poor in the towns where you minister. The heart of the apostles to see 
that the needs of the poor are not overlooked is the heart of the Lord himself. Jesus' earthly ministry, of course, was characterized by an interest in the lowly, the outcast, the destitute, those who couldn't help themselves and didn't have anything to offer Jesus in return for his kindness. And Jesus' earthly ministry, in turn, was simply an expression of the heart of God, the Father, that we see throughout the Old Testament. Father to the fatherless, defender of the defenseless, the lifter of the lowly, as we heard in Hannah's prayer that Lindsay read for us earlier this morning. James 1, verse 27, tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, we do well to remember the poor. Widows and orphans within our church family and those in the community around us in need draw out the compassionate heart of our God, and they ought to draw our heart to them as well. We help preserve our freedom in Christ when we are united with other Christians in gospel proclamation. I think we see that beautifully reflected in the right hand of fellowship between Paul and these other apostles. Now let's look together at the last few verses, beginning in verse 11 through verse 14, where Paul confronts Peter for misrepresenting the gospel. Things were going so well. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, it's not clear exactly where Paul's quotation of what he said to Peter ends. It's possible that the very next verse, verse 15, where he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, he could, that could be a continuation of what he said to Peter. We don't have quotation marks in the original man, uh, the, the manuscripts that we have reflecting uh, the, the writings of Paul and the other biblical authors. But the ESV ends the quotation there at the end of verse 14, and that's, that's okay for our purposes. So Peter comes to Antioch. Sometime later, Antioch is a base of operations for Paul. They were the sending church for Paul and Barnabas for his first missionary journey. And, uh, and so Peter has come down, or up actually, north, to Antioch to, to meet with Paul and the brothers there. And things maybe for a while are going okay. It says before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Nothing unusual here, right? Peter is enjoying table fellowship with non-Jewish Christians, those who have converted to Christianity. But then he starts to change his behavior. We don't know how long exactly this period of time is. It seems more than one time. It seems more than he was at a table and then suddenly he left the table. It's more like there was a period of time where he was happily enjoying the fellowship and friendship and relationships with Jewish, not, excuse me, with non-Jewish Christians around the table. But then gradually, as these men from James came, he started to worry. He started to worry about what they might think. He started to worry about what they might report when they go back to Jerusalem. Is he, are they going to tell James that I'm somehow compromising 
the gospel because of how I'm relating to these non-Jewish people. And so he begins to distance himself. So perhaps that's over time. He doesn't even seem to say anything. He doesn't necessarily make a statement. He just kind of starts to distance himself from the non-Jewish Christians. There's a significant detail that's hidden behind this text that helps us to know that Peter knew better than this. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was given a vision by the Lord. He goes up onto a rooftop to pray, and he becomes hungry. And so the Lord puts him into a trance and shows him this vision of a sheet descending with all kinds of animals on it. And he says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Like that's the voice of God. And Peter says, Lord, I have never touched anything unclean. Because remember, Jewish religious law would have included a strict dietary code about what kind of animals could be eaten and which ones couldn't, and what could be touched and which ones couldn't. Peter says, I've never touched anything unclean. And God says to Peter in that vision in Acts chapter 10, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And so Peter takes from that, well, I guess these Animals are okay to eat, and then the very next thing that happens is that God sends him to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, and he had told Cornelius in advance, I'm going to send you a guy named Peter. I want you to listen to what he has to say, and so then when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, Cornelius said, I'm supposed to listen to what you have to say. I don't know what it is, and so Peter preaches the gospel to him, and Cornelius and all his house are saved. They trust in Christ, are baptized, and it's just this amazing testimony of God at work beginning to break those barriers of religion and culture and society and ethnicity. And so Peter comes back to the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11 and reports all of this to them. And their conclusion, rightly, in Acts eleven eighteen, is, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter knew better. Peter himself had been taught by the Lord and had been used by the Lord in serving and preaching in Gentile context to know God doesn't make a distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. God doesn't draw boundaries racially, ethnically, socially around who can be acceptable to God and thus be a part of the family of God. So when he begins to distance himself from these Gentile converts, Paul says he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, what that means is that his guilt in this was clear. He was obviously out of step with the gospel. He's not condemned in the sense that of being eternally judged for his sin. Paul himself confidently asserts in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's not condemning Peter to hell here. He's saying, Peter, you are wrong, and it is evident that you are wrong in how you are treating these non-Jewish Christians. We don't know who the men from James are. It says that when the men from James, that is probably James the apostle who's in Jerusalem, when they came, Peter began to separate himself from the table fellowship with these Gentile Christians, fearing the circumcision party. And that's not like just the worst social event ever. That's the name of this group of people who are, sorry. It's the name of this group of people that Paul gives who are trying to say, if you want to be acceptable to God, you must be circumcised. That is, you must follow Jewish religious code. And so Peter begins to fear them and starts to distance himself from the Gentiles. We don't know for sure that the men from James are that circumcision party, or if Peter is just worried that they might report to, the word's going to get around, we're not too sure. But what is clear 
is that Peter in this instance is fearing man rather than God. Galatians 1.10, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here is Peter clearly fearing man and not serving Christ. Actually, in his fear of man, compromising the message of the gospel implicitly. Peter's actions are inconsistent with the gospel of God's free grace in Christ to all who believe. His refusal to share a table is distancing himself socially and relationally from professing Gentile Christians, functionally rebuilds the dividing wall of hostility that Christ specifically tore down in his death on the cross. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, especially as where he uses that language. Christ abolished the wall of hostility that divided Jew and Gentile. Come one, come all. In Christ, they are all welcome. And Peter, not by word, but by his action, and fairly subtle action of just beginning to distance himself a little bit socially from those people over there, is lying about the gospel. He's demonstrating that he thinks that actually in order to be truly acceptable to God and thus acceptable to me and the, the Jewish people of God, you really have to be more like a Jew. And so Paul recognizes they're not in step with the gospel, and he's led the others, apparently, including Barnabas. Paul seems particularly bothered by that fact. Even Barnabas was carried into this hypocrisy. They, he recognizes they're not in step with the gospel, and he admonishes Peter in front of all of them concerning the racial and cultural boundaries that he is wrongly creating. Paul had already told us that he was no longer living under the fear of man, and his actions here bear that out. He takes a bold, lonely stand for the gospel by correcting his fellow apostle and apparently all the other Jewish Christians gathered there, including Barnabas. And when he says, how can you, uh, you're living like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how then can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What he means there in living like a Gentile or living like a Jew is either observing or not observing Jewish dietary code. Right? So when you're eating with the Gentiles, clearly you're not assuming that they must follow the code, and actually you're probably not either. When he says to Peter that you're living like a Gentile, he's saying you're not making yourself eat what's clean and unclean. You've, just like you saw in Acts chapter 10, you said, what God's called clean, I'm not going to call unclean, right? So you're living like a Gentile, but now all of a sudden you're, you're implying that the Gentiles have to live like Jews. I can't have fellowship with you at the table because you're not following Jewish dietary code. And he says, how can you ask the Gentiles to live more like a Jew if just a few minutes ago you were living like a Gentile? This is hypocrisy, right? And so he calls this out. You are functionally adding to the gospel. I can think of at least two ways that this applies to us. Number one, a person who has repented of his or her sins and trusted in Jesus Christ is your brother or sister for now and eternity whether he looks like you or not. Whether he dresses and eats or talks like you or not. Whether he's of the same racial, ethnic heritage as you, belongs to the same economic class as you, enjoys the same social status as you or not. If you find yourself keeping distance, even subtly, from other Christians who aren't like you, whether out of a sense of superiority or simply out of some kind of fear, like Peter, then Paul would confront you 
in the same way he confronted Peter that day in Antioch. Christ has made us one. Welcome your brother. Let's allow the gospel to carry us into relationships and conversations and encouragement across racial, cultural, social boundaries that might be uncomfortable to us and strange to the world for the sake of God's free grace in Christ to all who believe. And a second way this applies is we need each other to help us keep living in step with the gospel. We owe one another a ministry of accountability whereby we exhort one another to act in ways that are consistent with the gospel that we profess. Remember, Peter didn't teach a false gospel, and he didn't even say anything false. He simply visibly withdrew from relationships across ethnic and cultural lines. But that was enough to undermine the gospel of grace. So let's strive by God's grace to let our actions be consistent with our words. And let's be willing to offer gentle correction to one another when those things are out of step. Well, we've seen in these 14 verses that we help preserve our freedom in Christ when we oppose gospel distortion, when we unite in gospel proclamation, and when we correct gospel confusion. Apart from Christ, the human conscience is bound to the law. In the gospel, God has freed us from the burden of measuring up in order to earn our righteousness. Not because righteousness before God doesn't matter. It's all important. The gospel frees us from measuring up because it provides us a righteousness outside ourselves. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, as the source of our standing with God. Obedience to the law is a shackle around the ankles of those who believe they can earn their way into God's good graces. The gospel of Christ, the gospel Paul was authorized to preach, the only gospel, declares that we are equally broken before God and utterly helpless to rescue ourselves. And then it announces that the burden has been carried, the debt paid, the way cleared, by one who lived and died and rose in our place. If you're not a Christian, hear this invitation in the gospel. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites you to leave the chains of obedience-based righteousness and come to him in simple faith for a clean conscience and a secure place in his eternal family. If you are a Christian, then live in the good of this glorious gospel. Rest in Jesus Christ and reject the temptation to slip the shackles of law-keeping back around your ankles. An old hymn by Philip Bliss celebrates, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O oh sinner, receive it. Once for all, O oh friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this glorious gospel. We thank you for the reality that 
Our standing with you is not dependent upon our ability to keep your law. We praise you that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled and obeyed the law in our place and that he died the death we deserve to die to take our penalty upon himself and that he rose from the grave to defeat death and to secure for us eternal life. Lord, teach our hearts to live in the good of this gospel, to live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us. Help us to be helpers to one another in pointing each other back time and time again to this gospel of your free grace in Christ. And if there are any in this room today who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you even now that they would find themselves today standing on the confident ground of the grace you have provided in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.